Welcome to 757 Tales, Stories from Hampton Roads. Season 1, Episode 13, 757's Aviation Firsts. 757 has been the backdrop for many firsts in aviation, but especially military aviation, going all the way back to July and August of 1861 during the early days of the American Civil War. Commissioned by Union Major General Benjamin F. Butler at Fort Monroe, Blooming pioneer John LaMountain made the first effective aerial reconnaissance flights in late July and early August of 1861, sending to 3,500 feet and observing Confederate positions as far away as York County and Norfolk. LaMountain, who was born in 1830 and died in 1878 in New York, was a pioneer balloonist. He was privately contracted as an observer by General Butler at Fort Monroe, and is credited with having made the first report of useful intelligence from the air on an enemy activity. Afterwards, he worked uh, another assignment with the Union Army Balloon Corps. He was a little educated. His father died early, and he became the sole support of his mother. When he was a young man, he was successful in making several minor ascents in balloons. He was known more for his contentious manner and his propensity to ride the coattails of more successful people. He wasn't considered to be relevant to the advancement of ballooning. Two years before the Civil War, he was invited to join the more prominent balloonist John Wise in an attempt to cross the Atlantic in a giant balloon named the Atlantic. They took off from St. Louis, Missouri on July 1st with several guest passengers. They passed over in Illinois and Indiana during the night, reaching Ohio by the morning. Then they passed over Lake Erie into upstate New York and over Lake Ontario where the Atlantic became caught in a storm and was forced to crash land at Henderson, New York. They were airborne for 19 hours and 50 minutes and had traveled over 1,150 miles, about 826 miles in a straight line. But the Atlantic was badly damaged. The men's partnership dissolved, upon which LaMountain took possession of the Atlantic. In September that year, he made an ascent along with a newspaper man from Watertown, New York, across Minnesota and Michigan. But again, they were stymied by the weather. Their ascent was made during an 84-degree day, but when they reached the height of about 15,000 feet, the temperature was down to 18 degrees Fahrenheit. When night came on, they had drifted over Canada by that time, and a partial descent was made to uh, try to hold their position until the daytime. They attempted to fly northward, but they were unwilling to continue, and they sat down and spent the next four days wandering the wilderness with no supplies. They were later rescued by lumbermen who helped them find their way. So back to 1861, LaMountain heads for Washington trying to get a job as the chief aeronaut for the Union Army. Other people were contending for this position as well. Most famous among them probably Thaddeus Lowe, also John Wise, and two brothers named Ezra and James Allen. LaMountain never caught the eye of the cabinet members or the Congress but he did go to work for Major General Butler at Fort Monroe, again being hired as a private contractor. He was still using the old Atlantic until he could be provided with a newer balloon called the Saratoga. Eventually, he lost even that balloon in a windstorm. He is credited with making the first report of enemy movements derived from an aerial observation, as we said earlier. Butler was soon after relieved of command of Fort Monroe, and LaMountain lost his position and was signed to the Army Balloon Corps under Chief Aeronaut Thaddeus C. Lowe. 
Contentious as he was, LaMountain kept fighting low over everything and attempted to discredit him to take over the position as the chief aeronaut because he had wanted that job. Lowe had gotten in really good graces with General George McClellan, who was the head of the Union Army at the time. And when LaMountain kept bickering, kept fighting, kept trying to drive Lowe into a corner, it became a public controversy. When that made it into the papers, and that combined with the morale among the balloon corps being low because of this bickering, McClellan dismissed LaMountain from the service, and he was never heard of again in a public position. So that ended the saga of the first Aviation First in Hampton Roads. Next, we turn to the Jamestown Exposition of 1907 and the Aeronautics Division of the same name. So it was held in 1907 for the Jamestown Tricentennial on property that later became Naval Station Norfolk. It included this aeronautics division, which promoted all sorts of things aeronautics, and it was the first aeronautical exposition building built exclusively for that purpose. There was a committee called the Aeronautical Congress, which included members of the early Aero Club of America, noted scientists and, quote, prominent sportsmen, which included the chief of the Weather Bureau. The secretary was Albert Zahm, who was in the early Aeronautical Navigation Conference at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. The balloon flights that were planned there were delayed due to bad weather and then some bad financing as well of some of the aeronauts. The first event actually held was a pigeon race to Washington, D.C. on the 9th of May, 1907. In a subsequent race on the 19th, the birds went to Philadelphia and New York. Finally, at the end of May, Lincoln Beachy flew over the exhibition grounds in a dirigible. He exhibited precision flying at speeds of up to 15 miles an hour. About a week later, Eugene Godet, an aviator, made a really eventful flight which included several crashes, and he ended up stuck on the USS Alabama, which was anchored out in Hampton Roads. The following day, they dedicated the exposition with several speakers, and the Admiral President, Admiral C.M. Chester, U.S. Navy, stated that the government would look into private experimenters for the practical solution of the problem of aerial locomotion, and that he hoped that the exposition would bring together all these ideas and models of many different aviators that would be of great value to science, and that the effort of the Jamestown exposition would deserve the enthusiastic cooperation of all those interested in flying. The Army Signal Corps sent six men from Fort Omaha to attend. In September 1907, they received training in Washington from New York balloon maker Leo Stevens. An International Aeronautic Congress with papers and speakers presented was scheduled to be held at the exposition in the last couple days of October, but then was relocated to New York at the last minute. Several of the prior speakers also spoke at the Congress, as did General James Allen, who was the chief of the Signal Corps. This exposition was not considered a great success, as many of the races were canceled, as said earlier. The company lost money and went bankrupt before the end of the year. The non-appearance of the Wright brothers at Jamestown must rank as one of the bigger disappointments of history, especially given this year was the year before they made their first public flight. However, a strange uh, waterborne aircraft was present, a multi-wing glider on floats. It was constructed in the aeronautical building by 10 soldiers placed at the disposal of Mr. Israel Ludlow, its originator, by the U.S. government. Mr. Ludlow previously built a bunch of gliders and by 1904 was towing them behind automobiles with Charles Hamilton, later to become one of America's best-known airmen, as his pilot. 
At Jamestown, Mr. Ludlow's amazing creation was towed by a Navy torpedo boat, but the intended two gasoline engines were never apparently installed and the craft was eventually dismantled. Later on, as we all know, the U.S. Navy under Secretary Josephus Daniels spent a considerable sum of money, 10 years later in fact, to buy this property that Jamestown Exposition was held on and created the U.S. Naval Station, uh, earlier known as the Naval Operating Base, Norfolk, at the beginning of the First World War. Our third story tonight is about Eugene Ely and the first shipboard flight of 1910. Three years later, test pilot Eugene Ely made the first takeoff from a ship on November 14, 1910, about a quarter mile from the Hotel Chamberlain at Old Point Comfort. Hurrying down a wooden ramp constructed on the USS Birmingham, his pusher biplane almost didn't make it, hitting the water and cracking its propeller. But Ely, who was deathly afraid of the water, managed to keep his aircraft airborne, circled over the bay at 500 feet, and landed at Willoughby Spit five minutes later. Eugene Burton Ely, October 1886 to October 1911, was an American aviation pioneer. He was born and raised in Iowa, and by the time he was 18 years old, he was employed as a chauffeur to a local reverend who also shared Ely's love of fast driving. In the father's car, a red Franklin, Ely set the speed record between Iowa City and Davenport, Iowa. A few years later, Ely and his recent bride moved to Portland, Oregon, where he got a job as a car salesman working for Henry Wem. Soon after, Wem purchased one of Glenn Curtis's first four-cylinder biplanes and acquired the franchise for the Pacific Northwest. Wem was unable to fly the biplane, but Ely, believing that flying was easy as driving a car, offered to do so. Of course, he crashed, and instead, feeling responsible, he bought what was left of the aircraft from Mr. Wem. Within a few months, he'd repaired it himself and learned to fly. He flew in the Portland area, then went to Minneapolis in June to participate in an exhibition where he met Glenn Curtis and started working for him. After a first try in Sioux City, Iowa, that was not successful, his first exhibition on behalf of Glenn Curtis was in Winnipeg, Canada in July. Ely then received the Aero Club of America's pilot's license number 17 on October 5th. Later in October, Ely and Curtis met Captain Washington Chambers, U.S. Navy, who'd been appointed by George von Lengerk Meyer, the Secretary of the Navy, to investigate military uses for aviation within the Navy. This led to two experiments. The first was on November 14th, 1910, as stated earlier. Ely took off in his Curtis Pusher from the temporary platform erected over the bow of the light cruiser USS Birmingham. John Barry Ryan, head of the U.S. Naval Aeronautical Reserve, offered $500 to build the platform on the Birmingham and a $500 prize for a ship-to-shore flight. The first fixed-wing aircraft landing on a warship was another first for Ely. He landed his plane on board the USS Pennsylvania, anchored in San Francisco Bay, on January 18th of the following year. He flew from the Tanfanaran racetrack in San Bruno and landed on the Pennsylvania, which was the first successful shipboard landing of an aircraft. His flight was also the first ever using a tailhook, designed and built by a circus performer and fellow aviator named Hugh Robinson. Ely said to a reporter, It was easy enough. I think the trick successfully be turned nine times out of ten. Ely communicated further with the U.S. Navy requesting employment, but U.S. Naval Aviation was not yet organized. So he continued flying in exhibitions while Captain Chambers promised to keep him in mind if Navy flying stations were created. The captain advised Ely to cut out sensational features for his sake and the sake of aviation. When they asked Ely about retiring, the Des Moines Register quoted him as replying, 
Quote, I guess I will be like the rest of them. Keep at it until I'm killed. To commemorate the 100th anniversary of the flight, Naval Commander Bob Coolbaugh flew a personally built replica of Elise Curtis from the runway at NAS Norfolk on November 12th of 2010. The Navy planned to feature the flying aircraft replica at events all across the United States. So Ely did keep at it until he was killed on October 19th, 1911. He was flying an exhibition in Georgia, and he did not pull out of a dive in time and crashed. He jumped clear of the wrecked aircraft, not wearing a seatbelt, but his neck was broken and he died a few minutes later. Spectators picked the wreckage clean, looking for souvenirs, macabre souvenirs, including his gloves, his tie, and his cap. On what would have been only his 25th birthday, Eugene Ely's body was returned to his birthplace for burial. Posthumously, in 1933, the Congress awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for his extraordinary achievement as a pioneer civilian aviator and for his significant contribution to the development of aviation in the United States Navy. Our fourth story tonight is entitled The Curtis Flying School in Atlantic Coast Aeronautical Station. Set up by the previously mentioned aviation pioneer Glenn Curtis, who made the first public flight of an aircraft in the United States previously, by the way, at Newport News Point, the Atlantic Coast Aeronautical Station conducted its first flight on December 29, 1915. It became an internationally known aviation school. More than a thousand of the first Army, Navy, and Coast Guard pilots learned to fly there, including several World War I aces and William Billy Mitchell, the father of the Air Force, whom we'll talk much about later. When Curtis's airplanes first took to the skies over Newport News Point, there was no Norfolk Naval Air Station or Langley Field, later Langley Air Force Base. This pioneering aeronautical station, as it was called, opened before both of those early aviation landmarks. Almost immediately, the site saw many of the world's best airmen with canvas-covered tent hangars and a dirt landing strip as the setting-off point for an unprecedented string of speed, altitude, and endurance records. These exploits were so sensational, during the school's six years in business, reporters, photographers, and newsreel cameramen from all around the country and around the world gathered to record them. We'll be right back after this word from Histories and Haunts. Histories and Haunts costumed interpreters bring history to life in a way that is both educational and entertaining. This clip explains a little bit about what our classroom presentations are all about. When I come to a school, I bring the necessary military equipment because I am a soldier, but I also bring a chest of personal items to show the children. For these guys, living in tents wasn't too much different than when they go camping today. Same items, just in a different form. We talk about food, the difference between the food from the North and the South, and the North had the ability to can things, and in the South they didn't. Uh, The difference in the industrial North and the agrarian South, an example of that is the steel canteens versus the wooden canteens. Uh, And actually the the way they dyed their uniforms, one used, the South used trees and, and plants, the North used chemical dyes. Hi. I'm Al Tuning, owner and creator of Histories and Haunts. Thank you. And I hope you'll remember us when you're planning something special for a school presentation or a community event, or you're looking for a public speaker, or maybe just some good family fun. As you've seen, we have an awful lot to offer. If you have questions about anything on the website, please contact me and I'll respond as quickly as I can. Al can be reached at 757-498-2127 or at historiesandhaunts.com. And now, back to our show. 
hundreds of would-be flyers from Canada, Britain, France, and half a dozen other countries, including Imperial Russia and Japan, waited in line to get into one Curtis's airplanes and take lessons from his famed pilots. Some of those aces included Eddie Rickenbacker, who later became a leader in commercial aviation and founder of Eastern Airlines. And there are a long list of other prominent instructors, observers, and graduates. People that came and went from this Newport News spot were a who's who of aviation, and it was one of the places to be if you wanted to be trained as a pilot or as an instructor. Curtis was widely known as the world's fastest man before he turned his talents and lust for speed to aviation in the early 1900s. He had started out as a teen as a champion bicyclist, a bicycle racer, and then a motorcyclist who also invented multiple inventions and created his own line of motorcycles in the early days of the automotive industry. Taking a V8 aircraft engine and put into a special frame of his own design, he set a world land speed record on the beach in Florida at 136.6 miles an hour in 1907. In that same year, he joined with the Canadian telephone inventor Alexander Graham Bell to produce a whole series of experimental advanced airplanes that went on to log their own speed and altitude records. In 1910, Glenn Curtis was basically the founder of the American aircraft industry, was producing his own planes at a factory in western New York. He was the developer of the seaplane or float plane for the Navy, uh, for the world really. His first float plane was a Curtis Pusher land plane with a canoe strapped to it in case it went down on the water during a long distance flight over New York. To set up the school, he secured a 20 acre piece of land at the small boat harbor in Newport News. This was ideal because they'd previously flown in more northern climes and Newport News had of course an ice free harbor. And with the outbreak of World War I in 1914, Curtis saw the coming need for pilots and pilot instructors. In the first groups reporting for training in Newport News in 1915, 28 were Canadians. And then they began training American Navy officers who were officially known as the Naval Air Detachment Curtis Field Newport News and later became part of the cadre that set up the Naval Air Station Hampton Roads across the bay at Norfolk. By September of 1916, the Army had also selected Curtis's field as its principal training station, and more than a thousand of their pilots graduated during the war. Billy Mitchell, though later the father of the Air Force, quote-unquote, was described as an instructor Walter Lees as very erratic. <laughs> Several other notable pilots were trained there, civilian pilots as well as military. Many people were drawn to this field because flying was a new thing, and a lot of spectators began to watch from the very beginning of the flying field. After the first weekend, December of 1915, the Newport News and Hampton Railway added extra trolleys to the run from the shipyard to the small boat harbor, and many more people and their families crowded the weekend ferries from Norfolk in the days before a bridge between Norfolk and Newport News. So not only did we have famous military aviators there and famous stunt pilots there, one of the students was the then internationally known ballroom dancer Vernon Castle, who earned at least one ticket while speeding to Curtis's flying field from his room at the Hotel Chamberlain at Old Point Comfort. He and his wife Irene were big stars at the time, vaudeville, later in silent films. One of the several famous entertainers who volunteered for the war, Vernon Castle received his pilot certificate early 1916. The Castles gave two farewell performances at the Hippodrome Theater in New York in January of 1916, accompanied by John Philip Sousa and his band. 
Vernon sailed for England to enlist as a pilot in the British Royal Flying Corps during World War I. Flying over the Western Front, he completed 300 combat missions, shot down two aircraft, and was awarded France's highest award, the Croix de Guerre, in 1917. Later posted to Canada to train new pilots, promoted to captain, he entrained with the rest of his unit to the U.S. for winter training at Camp Taliaferro, a Canadian training complex for the RFC near Fort Worth, Texas. On 15 February 1918, over Benbrook Field, another training field near Fort Worth, Vernon took emergency action shortly after takeoff to avoid a collision with another aircraft. His plane stalled and he was unable to recover control before the plane hit the ground. He died soon after the crash at age 30, which was old for a military pilot at the time. Vernon was the only casualty. According to the monument at the crash site, neither the other pilot, his student cadet, nor Vernon's pet monkey, Jeffrey, were seriously injured. His was only one example of the many sacrifices that famous people made in the First World War. And there was a Newport News dance professor among the students in that first year named Harold Marcellus, whose exploits as an ace in Europe were later made famous in the Oscar-winning 1930 film The Dawn Patrol. At the end of 1916, the Army and the National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics had purchased a large tract in Hampton that Curtis had previously looked at, but he turned it down as it was too expensive to expand to at the time. This new station began operations too late in the war to have any impact on the conduct of the war itself. But Billy Mitchell came back from the war and turned the renamed Langley Field into the center of Army air power in the early 1920s. And so the Navy aviators that had trained at Curtis's Field were now flying from Norfolk at the new U.S. Naval Air Station Hampton Roads. When Curtis's Field finally closed, four years after the war had already been eclipsed by these newer fields, and many of them were led by pilots initially trained by Curtis. The peak of Curtis's achievements came with the successful flight of the Navy's NC flying boats. As described in the previous episode of 757 Tales on the NC-4, designed by the Navy and built by Curtis's company, which were the first aircraft to cross any ocean in May of 1919, eight years before Charles Lindbergh's more famous flight. Eleven years later, in 1930, traveling to Rochester, New York, to contest a lawsuit brought by a former business partner, Curtis suffered an attack of appendicitis in court. He died on July 23rd in Buffalo, New York, of complications from an appendectomy at the young age of 52. Next, we cover the beginnings of the Langley Research Center, Hampton, Virginia. Today's NASA was established in 1958, but its history goes all the way back to 1915. Twelve years after the Wright brothers' flight, and two years before U.S. entered World War I, Congress created the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, or NACA for short. The airplane was not very reliable and couldn't really do much by 1915. NECA's mission was to, quote, supervise and direct the scientific study of the problems of flight with a view to their practical solution. They were to treat aeronautics not so much as a scientific discipline, but as an area for engineering, research, and development. In practice, this turned out to mean that NACA would perform basic research and provide practical solutions to problems facing the aircraft industry and the military. It took five years for NACA to have operational laboratory facilities, and Langley was first with a primitive wind tunnel. Construction of the Air Force Langley Field began in 1917, but it delayed completion of NACA's facilities for three years because of the war effort. Operational at Langley, finally in 1922, the Variable Density Tunnel was the first pressurized wind tunnel anywhere in the world. 
This created more realistic effects on the aircraft models being used in the chamber, and it better predicted how real aircraft perform under flight conditions. It still exists there today at Langley, and it is a National Historic Landmark. Once they had their laboratory going, they went after things with gusto. In 1931, they were generally acknowledged to be the world's premier aeronautical research facility. That year, their full-scale wind tunnel began operations and joined their variable density tunnel and their propeller research tunnel. Believe a set of research facilities outperformed any other collection of facilities in the world. And thanks to this, American aircraft began to dominate the world's airways. Through their systematic aerodynamic testing, NACA found practical ways to improve the performance on all types of aircraft. And during World War II, they tested virtually all types of American aircraft that saw combat. By just gaining a few miles an hour or a few extra miles of range, this made major differences in performance and between Allied victory and defeat. Following the war, NACA turned their attention to high speeds and the frontier of supersonic, the sound barrier. They played vital roles in the development of several experimental aircraft, including the X-1, which Chuck Yeager used to break the sound barrier for the first time, and the X-15, which was the first aircraft to actually fly into space. NACA flourished, and it continued as a federal agency until 1958 when it was abolished. However, much about it lived on. The labs and staff, though reorganized, became part of the new NASA Space Agency. At number six is a short segment on the creation of U.S. Naval Air Station Hampton Roads, Virginia, later known as Naval Air Station Norfolk, and part of Naval Station Norfolk today. As we spoke of earlier in the Glenn Curtis segment, upon recommendation of the CNO, William S. Benson, in February 1917 that eight aeronautic coastal stations be established, the Naval Air Station Hampton Roads, Virginia was established as an air training and patrol base to conduct experimental work in seaplane operations at the Naval Operating Base, or NOB, Norfolk. It also contained a blimp hangar. In January 1918, the Experimental and Test Department, located at Pensacola, Florida, transferred to Hampton Roads due to the remoteness of Pensacola's location at the time to principal manufacturing and industrial areas. The Naval Air Station existed as a separate command until the Navy consolidated it with NOB, now known officially as Naval Station Norfolk, in 1999. Next to last is the story of General Billy Mitchell and the first large-scale bombing in the U.S. of ships from aircraft. Led by the outspoken military Army aviator Billy Mitchell, Army biplanes from Langley Field in Hampton sank four warships off the Virginia Capes in bombing tests conducted during the summer and fall of 1921, demonstrating the superiority of air power in coastal defense. Earlier, Mitchell returned to the U.S. in January of 1919 after his wartime service. It had been widely anticipated that he would receive the assignment as director of the Air Service. Instead, he returned home to find that Major General Charles T. Menaher, an artilleryman who had commanded the Rainbow Division in France, had been appointed director on the recommendation of his West Point classmate, General John Blackjack Pershing. This was to maintain operational control of aviation by the ground forces, a conflict that still goes on within the Army today. Mitchell received his appointment on February 28, 1919, however, as Director of Military Aeronautics to head the flying component of the Air Service. That office was in name only as was a wartime agency that would expire six months after the signing of a peace treaty. General Menaher reorganized the Air Service based on the divisional system of the Allied Expeditionary Force, eliminating Mitchell's position, and he was assigned as third assistant executive in charge of training and operations, Office of the Director of the Air Service, in April of 1919. 
Mitchell was able to hang on to his temporary wartime rank of Brigadier General until June 18, 1920, when he was reduced to a Lieutenant Colonel in the Signal Corps. Menaher was also reduced to a Brigadier General in the same orders. The Army reorganized in June of 1920 by order of Congress. The Air Service was recognized as a combatant arm, third in size behind the infantry and the artillery. On July 1st, Mitchell was promoted to the regular Army, that is, a permanent rank of Colonel in the Signal Corps, but also received a recess appointment, as did Menaher, on July 16th to become Assistant Chief of the Air Service with the rank of Brigadier General once more. On July 30th, he was transferred, promoted to the permanent rank of Colonel Air Service with the date of rank of July 1st, which made him first in seniority of all the Air Service branch officers. On March 4th of the following year, Mitchell was appointed the Assistant Chief of Air Service by the new president, Warren G. Harding, with the consent of the Senate. On April 27th of that year, he was reappointed as a Brigadier General. Billy Mitchell did not share the common belief that World War I would be the war to end all wars, as it was called. He said if a nation ambitious for universal conquest gets off to a flying start in a war of the future, it may be able to control the whole world more easily than a nation has controlled a continent in the past. Mitchell returned from Europe with passion that within the near future, possibly within 10 years, air power would become the predominant force of war, and that it should be entirely independent and equal to the Army and the Navy. He was encouraged by Congress, who proposed a Department of Aeronautics that included an Air Force separate from the Army and Navy. The senators and congressmen were influenced by the recommendations of a fact-finding commission sent to Europe under the direction of the Assistant Secretary of War that contradicted the findings of Army boards that wanted to keep the Air Service within the Army, and they advocated for an independent Air Force. Mitchell believed that we required floating bases to defend the country against naval threats, but the CNO had dissolved naval aeronautics as an organization early in 1919, which was later reversed by then-Assistant Secretary of the Navy Franklin D. Roosevelt. Senior naval aviators had feared that land-based aviators and a unified, independent air force would no more understand the requirements of sea-based aviation than ground force commanders in the Army understood capabilities and potential of air power, and they did not want to form an alliance with Mitchell for fear of losing their naval air service. Today, many of these problems remain. The Navy's civilian leadership was also opposed, but for other reasons. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for yet another episode of 757 Tales, Stories from Hampton Roads.